you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 56 this morning. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 uh, transitions. Uh, there's three major sections within the book of Isaiah. And when we think about the book of Isaiah and how it works itself out, let me explain this. Uh, we just finished the second section, the second major section of the book. And Isaiah looks beyond his own generation to later times. That's what we were looking at in, in Isaiah 40 through 55. You know, God promises that in both the near term and the far term, he will save his sinful people. You know, he's, he's telling them that when you are exiled to Babylon, uh, and it will happen, but I will again redeem you. I will call you out of Babylon. I will help you uh, and draw you to myself. I will lead you out of exile. Uh, essentially, he is uh, saving them again. But in Isaiah 56 through 66, there's a third major section of the book. So if you're, you're taking notes, here it is. The prophet shows us the way into ongoing revival as we await the fullness of God's coming kingdom. Let me say that again. So this last section, 56 through 66, is talking about ongoing revival, how the way into ongoing revival as we await the fullness of God's coming kingdom. So in a sense, uh, or when we think about this, we, we think about that how are we to live in light of what has been promised to us? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but you're not in heaven right now. We're not there. And so what does it look like for a faithful follower of Jesus to live a life uh, that you know, resembles Jesus, images Christ, but also, you know, there's a struggle that we have. We have this struggle constantly. I mean, even our worship service, you know, is, is set up so that when we confess our sin, then we're assured of our pardon. And, and the confession of sin is to remind us that we are sinners and that we struggle and we have deep issues and, and we pray for our world because, I mean, our world is broken. You know, it is broken to the point where sometimes we can't even see the, the image of, of God in the midst of our broken creation around us. And we see relationships broken. And we see all of this mess. And we go, how am I called to live faithfully? Like, what, what should I do in the midst of this unfaithful generation? What, are, what am I called to, to, to think about and to, to spend my time doing? So that's where we are in, in chapter 56 as we, as we transition. So um, let me, we're going to read all of it together. It's not real long, so would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read all 12 verses today. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the Son of Man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So, you may be seated. So what we find is there's two major sections that occur within this new section of a new section of the book of Isaiah. And what we find is that the first eight verses deal with sort of this ideal. There's this ideal picture that we have of, of what we are called to do. And but what we find is later in verse 9, we find that we do not live in an ideal situation, but rather we live in a broken situation. We live in a situation where we do not have leaders and shepherds who are leading us in a right way, but rather we have leaders and shepherds who are leading us in a false way. So I'm going to preach backwards here for a second, okay? So we're going to look at 9 through 12 first, and then we're going to come back to 1 through 8 in terms of the ideal, okay? Just so that we know. So what is the prophet Isaiah speaking about when he goes to verse 9, 10, 11, and 12 in Isaiah 56. Well, here's what he's saying. He's talking about the beasts of the field come to devour. Now, he's not talking about the beasts of the field, like meaning animals per se, but what he's talking about are his watchmen in verse 10. Now, who are the watchmen of Israel? Who are they supposed to be? Now, the watchmen of Israel are the leaders of the day. They are the leaders. They are the priests. They are the Levites. They are those who are supposed to direct the steps of those towards Yahweh, right? Like we need leaders in our life to direct our steps, our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our lips in, in the direction of the Lord. As a matter of fact, we just came off Christmas. I know you guys did it, but there is one Christmas show, and I, and I, thought, I thought about this. As we look at all of the animated shows that we watched as young children through Christmas, some of them are just absolutely terrible. Just absolutely terrible. I mean, and I know, like, I loved, love, 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 love growing up Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, okay? It's a terrible show. Like, Santa Claus doesn't know anything. Like, Santa Claus doesn't know that Rudolph has a red nose. He knows when you're sleeping, when you're awake, all these other things, but he doesn't know that Rudolph has a red nose. Like, and, and why are every, why, and because he has a red nose, he's ostracized. Like, we don't want to deal with him anymore. And, you know, what does Santa have against misfit toys? I mean, like, he's not a good guy. In that, I mean, anyway. But, you know, there's one. There's, there's one in particular. There's one really good. There's two probably good ones. Uh, but there's one really good one. And you know what it is? It's a Charlie Brown Christmas. And there's a prophet in it. I don't know if you know this or not. There is a prophet in the midst of Charlie Brown Christmas. And his name is Linus. And Linus, even though... He is a broken individual who has to carry a blanket around with him wherever he goes. But by the way, we're all broken too, and so we all need a little bit of comfort, so you leave him alone. But he goes to Charlie Brown, and he says, Charlie Brown, this is what Christmas is about. And so Charlie Brown is you know, 
sucked into you know, all the commercial real, you know, all, all of these things that are going on. And yet Linus, as a prophet, comes and he directs the steps, the heart, the mind of all those children to be reminded about what Christmas is about. Now, Linus, and think about this next time, next year when you watch it, Linus is a good watchman. He is watching out for those that, that he loves and cares for and his friends. And even though Charlie Brown is the Charlie Browniest of them all, you know, he's directing his steps towards the Savior. Now, in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, here's what we find. It says, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. He says, his watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Now, here's what he says about the leaders, the priests, the Levites, the prophets of the day. He's saying you are blind. You have no knowledge. You do not know who Yahweh is. You do not know what Yahweh loves. You do not know how to live a life of faithfulness because you are blind. You do not open. You know, in a sense, they're saying, you know, rather than go to the word of God to determine what is right from wrong, you are going to Barnes and Noble. You know, and looking at the self-help section, and you're trying to figure out what is right from wrong. And you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm trying to think of all the, the you know, or, or, or maybe you're you're watching an infomercial or something like that, trying to determine what is right from wrong. And they're blind; they have no knowledge. Now, this is true even in our day. Many, many seminaries that are training up pastors today are using the Bible as a supplemental text at best. You know, I have I have friends who have gone to liberal seminaries and, and after they have left the liberal seminary, they have gotten saved. And they said, you know what? I didn't read my Bible in seminary. We never read our Bible. We had books that talked about the Bible or books that talked about talking about the Bible, but we never read it. And so the seminaries are teaching people false knowledge. And, and not only are they teaching them false knowledge, but they are silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down. Now, um, we have a dog named Henry. And Henry is pretty much good for nothing. Except this. I mean, he brings a lot of comfort and joy and all kinds of other stuff. But here's what, you know, in terms of like being a watchdog, like if you come into our yard, he will cower at your feet. He will roll over so that you will rub his belly. He is not going to protect us at all. But you know what he does? He barks. He is a big bark. As a matter of fact, one of my daughters, you know, came in late the other night, you know, from a babysitting gig that she had. It was about late, late, late after my bedtime, after any good person's bedtime should be. And all of a sudden he because she has to come up and all of a sudden we are woken up in the middle of the night because Henry is just barking, 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 because he knows that somebody is coming to, you know, maybe attack us, maybe come in or whatever. Now, it's just Olivia. And so we're OK. Right. She comes in, she goes to bed. But I will tell you that our heart leapt in our throat. What Isaiah is saying is that the leaders do not, because they do not know knowledge, they do not know that the people that they are called to love and support are literally being devoured by the world, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and not only are they, they cannot bark, but they're dreamers, they're lying down, and they love to slumber. You know, this is not, a good thing for a watchdog. Like you want a watchdog to be alert. You don't want a watchdog to just be sleeping all the time. But he's saying, Isaiah is saying that the leaders are slumbering. But, but not only do they slumber, but in verse 11 it says this, 
The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. So what he's saying is, literally the people are being devoured. Now, we read about this, uh, good shepherds, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Ezekiel 34, just to follow along with me so that we see what we see uh, in other places in Scripture. The, um, it says in verse 34, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because they were, there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now, that gives us just a little bit of context for when Jesus in the Gospel of John says, I am the good shepherd as opposed to the bad shepherd in John chapter 10. But also in Isaiah 56, we read it like this, that they are dogs, you know, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. So not only do they devour the people and use the people for their own selfish gain, you know, i.e. health and wealth preachers today who fly around on jets, you know, and, and really, I don't, they're only feeding themselves, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. And in verse 12, it says, you know what? We're going to get drunk with strong wine. Let's get wine and let's just drink ourselves into oblivion. So there is no vision for the, for the people of God. There is no you know, understanding so that they can teach the people the way of God. And there is only selfish desire. And, and we find that. We find that in the midst of our, our lives. We find people who are only about themselves. And quite frankly, sometimes when we look at our own selves, we find that we are oftentimes selfish ourselves. And we look at ourselves and go like, am I, am I becoming more like a, you know, a voiceless dog or, you know, a shepherd who does not want to lead people? Or how am I doing that? I mean, that's, that's where we live. So we have to be really careful about the elders that we ordain. We have to be careful about the pastors that we ordain to the gospel ministry. We have to be careful about the churches that we enter into to make sure that those churches are actually upholding the Word of God and using the Bible to teach and direct our steps so that we know what is right from wrong. You know, and, and I think sometimes today there are many pastors um, out there who will not talk about controversial issues. And you know why? Well, one, they don't understand them. 
And two, they like getting a paycheck. And they're concerned about not getting a paycheck if they deal with issues such as sexuality, such as racism, such as you know, money and finance. And they're like, you know, we don't want to become controversial as we appeal to our people because, you know, we don't want them to get upset. You know what? I hope that in the midst of sitting under the preaching that you get upset with some of the things I say. And what I mean by that is that you're convicted or you go, I'm not really sure what George had to say. I need to think about that. Maybe I should call him. Maybe I should actually, maybe I didn't hear it right. Or you know what? That kind of made me mad. You know what? Jesus did not come to make you happy. He came to save you and make you godly. And me too. You know, the Word of God should challenge us over and over. And I, I pray that myself and Blake and the elders, you know, and Sunday school teachers, that we would challenge people with the truth of God's Word. May we never flinch against the truth. Now, having said that by way of introduction, let's talk about the first eight verses. All right? Let's talk about something that I looked at and I was like, oh, man. All right. Chapter 56. Here's what happens. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Essentially, what God is saying there, what Isaiah is saying on God's behalf, is that the Lord is coming, salvation will come, and let's do what is right. Let's do what is right regardless of what people say. Let's do the right thing. And then he says this, blessed is the man, and you're thinking, okay, Beatitudes, right? Blessed is the man. Like, I want to be blessed. Who wants to be blessed by God, right? Like, sign me up. Like, I'm, I'm, matter of fact, if there was a sign up to be blessed by God, all of you would do it. You know, maybe you wouldn't RSVP to a wedding, but you would sign up for that list, right? We're going to sign up to be blessed by God. You know, blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. And I think he's referring to justice and righteousness, but then he throws this in. Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, if that were the only place that the word Sabbath comes up in this section, I would attribute what they're saying to the idea of justice and righteousness and a little bit of Sabbath. But he didn't say that. He didn't stop there. He says in verse 3, let not the four. Now, here's where I'm going with this. We see Sabbath occur in three different places, and we can't get past it in this particular section. In, in, in verse 3, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Yeah, because people are worried that, okay, I'm a part of the church. Is the Lord going to throw me out? The Lord will surely separate me from my people, and let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. A eunuch is someone who cannot have children. They've taken, you know, essentially physical, you know, um, anyway, all right. Verse four, you're going to talk to James Barry about it later. You know, uh, for, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now you got to understand that this is an ancient world where, where progeny, the you know, sons and daughters were, were really your wealth and your legacy. And he's saying the legacy that I will give the eunuchs will be greater than sons and daughters. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, 
everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer for all peoples. Now, so as I look at that, I'm like, okay. So in verse 2, the one who keeps the Sabbath is likened to the man who is blessed in verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this, who keeps the Sabbath. In verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep the Sabbath, there will be a monument and a legacy, an everlasting legacy that will be better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. There's a sense in which he's saying that he will give them uh, an everlasting name that is the greatest legacy he could give. But then in verse 6, it says everyone who keeps the Sabbath, what is the promise that we get there? It says that these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Three great promises that we see from people who are actually honoring and keeping the Sabbath. The first is that you will be blessed by God. The second is that you'll have an everlasting name, a legacy with God. And then third is that you will be joyful. You will be joyful in the house of God, and it will be a wonderful thing for you to have joy. Now, think about those things. Blessed by God, legacy, and joy. Sign me up, right? Like, sign me up for those things. And they're all related to Sabbath observance. And so we go, okay, George, I hear what you're saying. What does that mean? Because it seems like Sabbath is very, very restrictive. So let, let me, let's spend a little bit of time. Just a little bit of time today talking about Sabbath. And I hope that this is encouraging, not discouraging. Because I don't want you to feel as if the Sabbath is something to restrict you. But rather, I want you to see today that the Sabbath is meant to be a gift to be so that you will be blessed by the Lord with it. Now, the fourth commandment, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 103 says this, what does God require in the fourth commandment? First, that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained. Now, that was more of a Dutch thing. And that especially on the day of rest, I diligently attend the church of God to hear God's word, to use the sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that all the days of my life, um, I rest from my evil works. Let the Lord work in me through his Holy Spirit. And so begin in this life, eternal Sabbath. So there's this idea that of the Sabbath. Now, um, Nancy Guthrie, in her book, Even Better Than Eden, talks about the Sabbath in this way. And I think this is really, really good. She says, God has a gift he wants to give that could fill up that fearful place with a solid sense of trust in his provision. That's a gift. Wouldn't it be a good gift if, if somebody gave us a gift that could cover, that, that, that could fill up that fearful place with a solid sense of trust in his provision? This gift is meant to serve as a weekly course correction so that we will be able to see more clearly where we're headed and what is waiting there for us. Opening and appropriating this gift has the power to bring restful rhythm to our lives. Think about it. How many of you in the midst of the last several weeks have felt hurried in your life? Anybody? I mean, felt hurried. I mean, just totally felt like, man, I am undone. But God has given us the gift of a day, one day different from all the other days in our week, to push away from the table of the world that fills us up with its amusements and technology and weighs us down with its expectations and commitments. This gift invites us 
instead to pull up a chair at the table where God himself wants to fill us up with himself and to take on himself all the things that are weighing on us. Wouldn't it be great if, if, if weekly we would you know, take our chair and pull up to the table of God and just say, Father, here is all that my heart is burdened by. And just to give it to him. And then in the midst of communing with your Father, He lavishes you with good things and reminds you that you are loved and forgiven and that your legacy is secure and that that you will be blessed and that there is joy in the midst of His presence. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we thought of the Sabbath as that, this Lord's Day, and we um, think about it in this day, in this way, in, in Genesis, if you, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Because the Sabbath is not given to us in, in Exodus chapter 20, although it's given to us there in terms of how we're supposed to honor it. But in Genesis chapter 2, we actually read it in, in, the, in the midst of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 say this. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the Sabbath day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we read in the place of Exodus chapter 20 is that you know it is an ever-present sign of a loving relationship. Sabbath keeping would set God's people apart as being so well taken care of by their God that they could take a day from rest. So when God gives them an extra day, remember, he's giving it to them in Exodus chapter 20. Remember where they were right before they received these Ten Commandments. They were in Egypt making bricks without straw. And so their whole identity as slaves in Egypt is this. How much can I produce? It's all about production. You're like, if you don't produce, you won't eat. If you don't get it done, you're not doing it. And so their whole life was set all seven days of the week. And so when God leads them out, he reminds them that one day in seven is to be set apart. And God will so love them that he will actually provide for them manna on the sixth day enough so that they wouldn't have to work on the seventh day. That honoring the Sabbath would set them apart as a people who had something to look forward to. Unending, all-encompassing rest in the presence of a one true God. Now we, we see that you know, in, in the midst of Exodus chapter 20. So we think about you know, when we celebrate the Sabbath, there should be rest involved. There should be um, wanting us wanting to image our Creator in terms of you know, resting on the seventh day. But it also is saying that the Lord has saved us for Himself. And in taking one day out of seven and setting it apart, it reminds us that God loves us. And we look forward to something in the future. Now, something happens uh, in the New Testament. In, in, in the Old Testament, we call it the Sabbath day. But in the New Testament, we actually call it this. Like the, the Sabbath, uh, we actually call it the Lord's Day. So whether you call it the Sabbath in the Old or the Lord's Day, we're talking about the same thing. But believers in, in the book of Acts, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the, in the book of Revelation, they began to call it the Lord's Day. And they began to appropriate this day as the first day of the week rather than the last day of the week. Now, they did that for a couple reasons. One was because that's when Jesus rose from the grave. And so there's a newness to it. And so believers celebrate on the Lord's Day. 
So whether you're talking Lord's Day or Sabbath, you're really talking about the same day. Um, but one, uh, I, we can talk more about that later. But let's talk about the Sabbath just a little bit more. The word Sabbath comes to us from a Hebrew word, Shabbat. And the word literally means to stop. Okay? Just to stop. The Sabbath is simply a day to stop. Stop working, stop wanting, stop worrying, just stop. I'm, I'm, I'm referencing uh, the ruthless elimination of the hurry right now. Uh, John Mark Comer, he says this. He says, think of the images that come to us through lifestyle advertising and our social media feeds or that trendy magazine on the coffee table. The couple lounging in a king-size bed over breakfast and coffee. Organic linen spilling onto the floor. The photo-perfect picnic at the beach with wine, cheese, and that trendy bathing suit. A 20-something playing guitar on the couch while watching the rain fall. Whether they are selling a new bathrobe, a down comforter, or a piece of furniture, almost all of them are images of Sabbath, of stopping. The marketing wing of Blue Dot or Kinfolk, I don't even know who these are, and cereal magazines know that you ache for this kind of stopping, rich life, but you don't have it. And they are tapping into your restlessness, hoping to cash in. The irony is you get this feeling, the irony is to get this feeling, you don't need to pay $99.99 for a terry cloth bathrobe or $70 for a handmade throw blanket. You, you, you just need to Sabbath, to stop. You need to take a day of your week to slow down, breathe. But Sabbath is much more than just a day. It's a way of being in the world. It's a spirit of restfulness that comes from abiding, from living in the Father's loving presence all week long. You could frame it like this. Um, restfulness, restlessness, margin, busyness, slowness, hurry, quiet, noise, deep relationships, isolation time, alone crowds. Um, he goes on to, to just to, to listing these things like, like, where are you in the midst of this? Are you, are you, are you quiet? Are you noisy? You know, are you worried? Are you trusting? Do you have peace or do you have anxiety? Um, think about this. You know, um, a man named A.J. Swoboda wrote this. He said, the Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result, our road, so this is what he's saying. He said, because the church has neglected the Sabbath, because we don't talk about it. He says this, our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It is not as though we do not love God, we love God deeply. We just don't know how to sit with God anymore. How do we do that? We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Think about that. Overworked, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished, and we are just exhausted. And we do not know how to sit with God anymore. Now, let me remind you, I am not saying that we need to honor the Sabbath in order to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, what I'm saying is that Jesus invites us into a relationship with Him to rest and to abide with Him. And when I think about abiding in John 15, I think Jesus is saying, just come sit with me. Be with me. Rest, remain, and rejoice in my presence. That's what Sabbath is. You see, Jesus, when he died, he brought us into the family of God. 
And he says, I want you to have a seat at the table where you can unburden yourself in relationship with me. And brothers and sisters, I know that your hearts are burdened. And I think that one of the things I see in Isaiah 56 is through being blessed and having a legacy, but also being joyful in a house of prayer. It's honoring the Sabbath and saying, I want to do better. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus. I want to sit at the table of the King. Now, let me give you some practical tips here, okay? Um, you know, part of it, I think that one of the reasons that we struggle with Sabbath is that we're just busy. And we busied ourselves up, right? You know, Tim Kreider, in a New York Times article called The Busy Trap, he said this. He said, we are one of the most, uh, one of the, um, we are one of the most, uh, I guess he says, most of our busyness is self-imposed. Think about it. Most of your busyness in your life is self-imposed. The great majority of what fills our time are obligations that we've taken on voluntarily. To a large degree, we are busy by choice. It's not inevitable. As much as I have, hate to admit it, I do this to myself. And the second is this. He says, and Kreider writes this. He says, they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety because they're addicted to busyness and dread. And dread what they might have to face in its absence. He continues, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Boy, that is a lie from a, from a smoky place. That our lives will, cannot possibly be silly or trivial because we're busy. You know, Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. And I think that deep down inside of us, we know that to be true, we, we know we need to slow down. We know we need to cease our compulsive doing. We know we need to rest in and enjoy Jesus. We're just not sure how this works. So let me give you four um, points uh, for Sabbath. And I'm going to give you some grace here too. First is this. When we think about Sabbath, stop working. You know, Sunday, stop working. Cease from your work and, and be reminded that the Lord provides. You know, think about it. Like, what is the one great company right now that still honors the Sabbath? They're crushing it, by the way. They're crushing it. And I get a little bit upset when I drive by them on Sunday and they're not open and I can't pull in. But Chick-fil-A, right? And you know what? And they're unbending in it. They're like, we're not going to give it up. We're not going to do it. And it seems like their business is really hurting, doesn't it? Seems like they're really, really struggling with all those lines wrapped around their building over and over again. You know, when we stop working, we're saying that Lord, we're going to trust. We're going to trust that you will provide. Now, I'm not saying don't work hard the other six days of the week. Hard, hard, hard. I mean, work as if you are working for the Lord. You know, work diligently. I mean, work hard, but then take one day and say, "I'm stopping my work." Try that as you think about the new year. Secondly, enjoy rest. If someone offered you a full day to rest your mind, your body, and your soul, your only question would be is where to sign up. That is exactly what God has given us every single week. It's a day to slow down and experience the rest that you're aching for. It's a physical rest. It's a mental and emotional rest. It's a spiritual rest. I mean, rest. So stop working and just rest. You know what? Take a nap. It's okay. 
rest from all the worries and the spinning that is going on in your mind. Third, practice delight. One of the most common misconceptions of Sabbath is that it's fundamentally about what you can't or ought not do. We certainly do not need to say no to certain things. I'm sorry, we certainly do need to say no to certain things, but we but we say no to those things in order to say yes to others. One of the consequences of our incessant busyness is that we are unwittingly stopped enjoying the people, the activities, the gifts, the God that we love. Sometimes it's because we don't have time to enjoy them, but often it's because we can't switch our focus away from our work, our tasks, or our devices long enough to actually pay attention to the person, the activity, the gift, or the God who is right in front of us. Sabbath, in the midst of delighting, Sabbath enables us to slow down to enjoy. Sabbath also, or the Lord's Day also, allows us the opportunity to show compassion and mercy to those around us. One of the hallmarks of Jesus' enjoyment of Sabbath was serving. Serve. Love people. Care for people. Visit people. And then fourthly, it's you know, not only are we called to rest or to cease working, to rest, to delight, but we're also called to worship God. You know, we're called to worship Him, to make it a priority in our life. Now, some some of the ways that we do that is, you know, prioritize Sunday. Think about how you can prepare for Sunday. Think about how you can get all your work done so that you can actually rest. Now, here's the deal. You're going to fail, right? We're going to fail at this. It's If we actually took all of those things into account, if we stopped um, working and we're resting, we're delighting, we're worshiping, there are going to be times where we can just get caught up. So I want you to give yourselves a lot of grace in the midst of this. You know, Ease into the practice and give yourself tons of grace. Um, you know, maybe it's even incorporating a digital Sabbath. Maybe on su- Saturday night you actually turn off all the notifications of texts and everything else and that you only receive phone calls on your phone. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? It'd be like we're back in 1999 or something like that. Pre-internet. The good old days. Um, but think about this. And let me conclude with these words. Um, Sabbath is one of the most counter-cultural practices. So it's going to take a while to find the rhythm that will work best for you. It might feel like you're swimming upstream for a while, but stay with it. Start small and ease yourself in over the course of a month or two. Maybe you begin with a half day of Sabbath. See what works and what doesn't. Resist the urge to say, I'm bad at this, or this isn't for me. Likewise, avoid the legalism that loses sight of the gospel. Remember that you're already fully accepted and beloved in Jesus. And that's not based on how well you rest. So be patient with the practice and with yourself. Essentially what I'm saying is, you know, work at it, but when you fail, know that that's why Jesus came and died on the cross. And say, Lord, help me. Help me to rest. Help me to rest in in all that you've given me. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to rest. Father, help us to delight in all that you have given us. Father, I pray, Lord, that in the midst of our lives that we would order our lives around the rhythms and the cadences that you have said would bring the greatest blessing and fulfillment and joy to our souls. So, Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior.
Thank you that he saves us from our sins. Father, thank you that he saves us from ourselves. So, Father, help us to rejoice in Christ and to worship him well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.